Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So listeners, welcome to this week's edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we answer your, our listeners' questions. And Cass, as you already know, we have been sitting on this question for a while now, just waiting for this time of year to roll around. And it's finally here. This past Monday, May 6, 2019, was the first Monday in May. And I think that some of our listeners are going to know what that means. So excited for today's topic. So Claire Dory Miles wrote to us a few months back asking, if you could choose a theme for the Met Gala, what would it be? And I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the red carpet or the pink carpet, we should say, pics of one of fashion's most glamorous events, which happened on Monday. And that was the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Costume Institute Benefit, aka the Met Gala, aka this should be an international holiday, in my opinion. Oh. Seriously, everyone at FIT was so excited all day. It was like all anyone could talk about, or maybe it was all I could talk about. I don't know. (laughs) Are those two things different? Yes, they are. (laughs) But um, going back even further, Cass, uh, what we call the Met Gala now used to be called the Party of the Year. So, Claire, before we get to our fantasy Met Gala exhibition ideas, Perhaps we should do a little bit of a brief history of the event to provide some context. Yes, and as April mentioned, what we now know as the Met Gala was originally called the Party of the Year, the brainchild in part of Eleanor Lambert, who apparently we cannot avoid mentioning time and again on this show. No, she just keeps happening. Yeah, I mean, she's such a seminal figure in American fashion, really from the 1940s onwards, and I think she definitely deserves her own episode at some point. Yes, and we keep saying we're going to do that, but we haven't done it yet. But we promise that we will. Um, And I like that you bring up the 1940s because this is exactly the point where our story begins. Because in 1946, the collection of the Museum of Costume Arts merged with the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and was henceforth renamed the Costume Institute. And it was not officially a curatorial department of the museum until 1959, so that kind of meant like, you know, they were like the like the ugly stepsister, uh, you know, that was kind of like within the museum at that time. And they really needed all the help that they could get funding what they did there, their work. Which is why two years in, so we're talking 1948, invitations went out to the movers and shakers of the American fashion industry for a fundraising event intended to fund the Costume Institute collection. So more than 700 designers and industry insiders flocked to take part, as the collection was actively used by industry as a source of design inspiration. The sold-out event raised more than $315,000 in today's money. And I just want to take a pause here for a second and and say that, like, when we're going to talk about the sums of money moving forward, we're just going to talk as if it was adjusted for inflation today, because this is a long span of time. And I think context is like really necessary. 
But um, the event took place at the Rainbow Room, where the guests paid about $500 uh, for dinner and entertainment that was provided by, well, none other than the guests themselves. <laughs> they, they performed skits, they performed song and dance numbers, and engaged in, as what the New York Times wrote at the time, quote, a spirit of gaiety with a bit of lampooning by trade people in New York's fashion industry. Yeah, so the initial years of the party were overwhelmingly attended by industry professionals who got the inside joke of skits like the Fashion Cynics Award, which poked fun at the Cody Fashion Critics Award. There was also Guess the Dress Contest, and my personal favorite, which is the 1949 Party of the Year, when designers Claire McArdle, Carolyn Schnur, and Josie Walker all performed a I Want a Zoot Suit lip sync number, which I wish there was video of that somewhere. I... That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. I was like, why is this not on YouTube? Because <laughs> I really want to see Clara McArdle do a lip sync number. But that isn't even like the apotheosis of the event because also at the 1949 party of the year, there was a pageant portion cast. And we've already talked about this. But the pageant portion was where living models actually put on garments that were in the Costume Institute's collection and then they paraded them around for guests. And this particular year, it just happened to be um, gowns by Worth, uh, paired with jewels by Harry Winston. So what I'm saying here is basically like record scratch. At this time, <laughs> these museum collections were actually letting people put the garments on and wear them around the room, which is insane. Which is something I fantasize about often, but would never do. <laughs> and something we, like you said, we've discussed it a few times on the show, but museum practices, like anything, are progression. And if you think of it, April, these worth gowns at this time were only about 50 years old versus how old they would have been today. So they're like more vintage. They were like, <laughs> like they were kind of like 1900s-ish, turn of the yeah. century models that they were wearing. But the thing is, is that this practice of this pageant portion of the party of the year was something that actually went on for years and years. Um, and, and, and as did the annual event, it just kind of bopped about from one very, very fancy venue to another. You know, one year it was at the uh, Rainbow Room. One year it was at the Biltmore Hotel. Then it was at the Waldorf Astoria for a while. And eventually the parties started to become themed. Um, so, for instance, in 1951, the theme was Feather Fancies. Um, and, and at that year, attendees were kind of entertained by Louise Dahl Wolf and Horst P. Horst, who were, of course, probably some of the most famous fashion photographers working in their genre at the time. Um, and, th and they were really kind of like entertaining the celebrities and the socialites who flocked to the event because now it wasn't just only the industry insiders. It has become a very, very popular event. And we know this because apparently everyone received $1,000 goodie bags. Oh. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, Cass, as the popularity of the um, event grew, so also did the sums of money that it raised. Um, the Midas Ball in 1952 raised more than $478,000. And the 1956 A Night of Roses theme party was attended by more than 1,200 people as it had now been officially open to the general public. 
1960, the party of the year was officially and permanently moved to the museum itself. The previous 12 years' worth of events had raised nearly $7 million for the Costume Institute, which was now to be directed towards a major renovation for, quote, more spacious and dramatic exhibition galleries, timely displays for designers based on topical fashion issues, vastly expanded live study storage and textile study rooms, greater number of workrooms for individual designer contemplation and creation, modern lecture workshop for students, and the expansion of the Institute's educational program and library and its publication facility as well. So really a lot was being put into the CI even in the 1960s. Yeah, and I think that probably has a lot to do with the fact that they were like holding these parties and doing this fundraising in like hopes that it would be made an actual official curatorial department, which only happened in 1959. So it makes sense that in 1960, like everything became like legit. Right. So, um, and, and and all of these things that happened um, in the ensuing decade probably were very much enjoyed by Diana Vreeland, who joined <laughs> the Costume Institute um, as a special consultant in 1972, This was all following her somewhat controversial firing from Vogue, I must say. Um, But when she did that, she effectively shifted the model of the event to what it remains today, which is an ultra-exclusive, invite-only dinner party um, that happens in conjunction with a themed museum fashion exhibition. So Cass... While I was researching some of this back history of of the party of the year and, of course, like the Met Gala, what was really fascinating to me was that when Vreeland takes over, almost every single mention of the event in the press, like, disappears, like, into the ether. Might as well be Kaiser Sose. Interesting. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the mentions that do happen in the press say that It is the social event of the New York season that it's the quote-unquote hottest ticket in town. And I I don't know. Like, I I find this really interesting that at this moment when it becomes that exclusive, there's no longer any press about it. Um, Which, it does remain today kind of like the hottest ticket in town and the most exclusive fashion event that happens in the United States. Um, But in terms of press coverage, maybe it differs a bit. Following Freeland's death in 1989, the Met Gala waned in popularity for a few years, and the New York Times wrote in 1944, for years there have been attempts to freshen up the Costume Institute party, the most successful being the addition of an after-dinner party that attracts 2,000 fashion-struck young people. Even so, increasingly, there is talk that the party has lost its fizz. Some say it had already gone flat. Until enter Vogue Editor-in-Chief Anna Wintour, Because in 1995, she begins her affiliation with the Met Gala as a co-host. And then in 1999, she officially takes over its annual leadership. And in her hands, the event really, once again, blossomed in popularity amongst the celebrity and social sets. And the ticket prices reflected this increased demand. I mean, Cass, this is a fundraiser, after all. That's the whole point of the party. (laughs) Um, But in in 1994, the price of a ticket before she took over, a ticket to the dinner was about what would be $1,500 today, whereas to attend in 2003 to go to the goddess-themed event, that would have set you back nearly $5,000. So that's, that's an exponential increase. 
And that is, of course, if you are invited, because Wintour notoriously personally approves each and every single invitee. So a single ticket to last year's Heavenly Bodies event, for example, went for $30,000 and corporate tables were $275,000. And I mentioned this because even if you are invited as a guest to a corporate table, you still have to be approved by Anna Wintour. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what's going on over there, but this seems like a ton of work. <laughs> Wrangling all these people and all these oh celebrities and all these. Yep. Uh, I'm exhausted. All of these years of work are exactly why the galleries of the Costume Institute were renamed the Anna Wintour Costume Center. And that was in 2014. Over the last two decades, April, she has helped to raise $125 million to keep the Institute alive and well. I know. And that's really incredible. Um, but you know what's not incredible? I have some unfortunately very sad news because my invitation to this year's event was apparently lost in the mail. <laughs> Don't feel too bad. Mine was too. But I mean, <laughs> even then, would you be willing to fork over $30,000 to go? Well, I mean, dressed isn't making us rich yet. <laughs> But even on that, that being said, I don't know if I would pay $30,000 to go. I would rather send that to a children's hospital in Cambodia. Um, um, but that being said, not everyone has to pay for their tickets because there are certain cases where when Anna really feels like there's a certain celebrity or a young and up-and-coming designer that she really wants to be there that, that can't afford those ticket prices, she does kind of underwrite and sponsor some of their attendance ship. So I would just like to officially state for the record that Anna, whenever you'd like to sponsor these two fashion stories, <laughs> we'll be there. Yes. Yeah. I second that. <laughs> what would you wear, Cass? I mean, I guess we are talking pure fantasy at this point. <laughs> so it would absolutely depend on the exhibition theme. But I think we all know that I would wear Paul Poiret. Yes. Yes. And yes, you, yes. what about you? I mean, like, again, it's hard to say because, like, you always want to, like, rock what the theme is. Right. But but in, in my gut, I would say I would try to figure out and move heaven and hell. Probably my first phone call would be to Decades in Los Angeles to see if they have anything <laughs> in my size in vintage Scaparelli. Oh, and that would be absolutely stunning. <laughs> okay, so so not that we've gotten entirely off track in this fashion history <laughs> mystery episode, but this is probably the point where we should answer Claire's question. Um, Claire, again, asked us, what theme would you pick for next year's 2020 Met Gala? Cass? Which was an incredibly interesting and thought-provoking question because that, you know, I feel like that's like a huge undertaking to present an exhibit at the you know, world-class Metropolitan Museum of Art. But, I mean, the very nature of the Met Gala makes it almost impossible to do an exhibition that doesn't have this level of extravagance and gravitas to it. But I actually would love to see an exhibit that tracks the evolution of women's dress as it relates to functionality. So as something that is historically both opposed and supported it. So, you know, from springy 18th century panniers to 1850s bloomerism to the 1910s era that saw both tango skirts that freed the legs and hobble skirts that bound them. I mean, this could come all the way to the present day and of course be presented through a feminist lens, which would speak to wider issues regarding societal gender barriers and roles. 
Cool. And what about you? Fantasy fashion Mm. exhibition. Yeah. I've always thought that if I was going to do a big, like, really kind of, like, blowout exhibition, I'd really like to explore the relationship between fashion and the sea. Because not only do I think it would be supremely gorgeous, but I think there are so many different angles that you could, like, look at this topic. You know, first of all, from, like, a really basic way of thinking about it, you could incorporate clothing that was specifically made to wear in mm-hmm. or near the ocean because that's a whole thing too um and and really get into that kind of social history aspect of it but I, but I also think that there are so many incredible examples throughout history how designers themselves have been inspired by the marine world you know and and a lot of the actual myths surrounding the marine world or the sea or the ocean. You know, one of the most recent examples of this was um, um, Haute Couturier, Zahir Murad's recent spring 2019 Haute Couture collection. And, and that's only just one of an endless list of designers who have given over entire collections to this sort of like, you know, the appeal and, and allure of the aquatic. So I don't want to say too much more about this, but none of y'all steal my ideas out there. <laughs> if we see if we see this exhibition happening in a year or two from now, <gasps> I, I, I'm not saying you didn't think of it yourself, but just saying. Anyway, <laughs> Cass, really all of this, this entire thing of me wanting to do this exhibition is only about, it's an elaborate ruse for me to put into a museum exhibition, and I will explain this, a Halston scuba suit, mask, and fins, because <laughs> we have this incredible photo in the collection FIT of Halston runway photos of model Pat Cleveland in this pale blue neoprene, you know, obviously zip-up scuba suit with wearing a mask and fins and, you know, the breathing tube on the runway in the Halston <laughs> salon. <gasps> and it's one of my all-time favorite things. That oh, my gosh. Are we able to see an image of this? Because it sounds fabulous. I can totally post this. <laughs> uh, and I'm actually reading currently, a little off topic, but not really, um, Pat Cleveland's memoir, Walking with the Muses, which is absolutely wonderful. And since you've mentioned her, I would just like to say that both April and I really extend Pat uh, lots of well wishes after her recent cancer diagnosis. So get better yes. soon, Pat. We're sending yes, you yes. all the fashion history, love and vibes. Mm-hmm. Sparkles and twirls. Lots of twirls. Lots of twirls. So, Casa, maybe this is the point in the show where we actually talk about um, Monday's red carpet event, which was actually last night. So we were kind of holding off recording this until we could see everything that actually happened. Um, the theme was camp. So, of course, many of the ensembles were understandably wacky. Yeah, I mean, I resisted texting you. I think we started texting each other like once and it was like, no, stop. We, we did. can't talk. We did. <laughs> we have we to did. keep all of this this built up energy until tomorrow so, so we can discuss, discuss, discuss. So I'm super excited. We kept our opinions to ourselves. Yes. So I have no idea what you're going to talk about. <laughs> but before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the, the exhibition, which inspired the, the gala this year. So the current exhibition, it opens May 9th, is Camp Notes on Fashion. And when we say camp, 
We don't mean in the sense of a weekend out of doors spent living in a tent. Which is also great. Yeah. <laughs> but rather camp as it refers to a way of dressing. Although I did see a like a costume made with a tent. So we'll get to that in a minute. But the exhibition named Camp Notes on Fashion was inspired by a 1964 essay by Susan Sontag entitled Notes on Camp, in which she attempts to contextualize and define the term. So for Susan, one way that she characterizes camp is by a, quote, love of the unnatural, of artifice and exaggeration. But it's really so much more complex than that. It's pretty hard to define an expression. Camp scholar and co-author of the exhibition catalog, Fabio Coletto, told the BBC, camp, quote, may be roughly described as a form of both performance and of perception celebrating theatricality and excess, improvising reality as a stage for outrageously ironic self-display and reinvention. I mean, oh, that makes my heart so happy. (laughs) And exhibition curator Andrew Bolton says, quote, the ultimate purpose of camp is to put a smile on our faces and a warm glow in our hearts. And and, and it did. It did. It really yes. did. So many fun uh, outfits inspired by camp last night um, and representing camp. And we're going to talk about that very shortly. But many of the roots of camp style can be traced actually back to gay culture at the dawn of the 20th century. Hell Yeah. Yeah, associated with famous people like Oscar Wilde, but also drag queen and ball culture. So this idea of really subverting these stereotypes of expression, sexuality, gender that was happening in society at the time and making them even bigger and bolder. So humor, excess, irony, sexuality, subversion, extravagance, all of these things and more can really play out in the performance of camp style. And it's admittedly really hard to explain. Even the exhibition curator, Andrew Bolton, says it. Um, anybody, any of the scholars who've really studied it say that it's not easy to define. But once you really see it, April, you know it, right? I mean, in oh, yeah, theory. Well, you know it when you see it. <laughs> you know Yeah, I mean, many people on last night's pink carpet gave their interpretations, some trying harder than others, perhaps, others not trying at all, and maybe others that were a bit confused. So I'm hoping we can discuss both our best-dressed men and women and go from there. I've been dying to talk to you about this for 24 hours, so very excited. It's it's actually been very, it's been rough because we haven't talked about it at all. I know. (laughs) Okay, so how do we want to do this? Do we want to say, like best dressed man and then well let's do best dressed women because we're a feminist podcast first (laughs) all right (laughs) go for it who is your best dressed lady if you had to pick one although i'm not going to by the way i'm picking multiples but oh i'm gonna pick multiple i'm gonna pick multiple too but for sure for sure for sure for sure hands down janelle monet she was amazing and she was wearing customs, uh, Christian Siriano. And uh, if anybody hasn't seen the photographs yet, uh, her ensemble was kind of like a split in half ensemble that uh, she talked about Christian with doing inspired by her favorite artist, which is Picasso. So um, on half of her body, first of all, it's encompassed by kind of like like tubular voluminous skirt that goes all the way down to the ground. Half of it's white, half of it's pink. On the white half, there are lips. Above that, her bodice is kind of very form-fitting and black with a long sleeve. On the other side of her body, the skirt is pink. And 
The only part of it is like as if it were a strapless gown that also revered her stomach. So it was kind of like this bra-like part of the dress. And what's amazing, Cass, is that in my research on this, um, is that you cannot tell this in the photos, but that bra part, which is fashioned to look like an eye with sequins and beading, it actually had animatronics in it that blinked. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, I did then, not see video of that. That's really cool. Yeah. And then, not to top this all off, but she has on a hat that is actually multiple hats stacked on top of each other. And, you know, like, I, I think this was such a really, really brilliant collaboration between the two of them because it so clearly was. Because Janelle, who is my hometown girl from Kansas City, shout out, um, <laughs> you know, she has, since the very beginning of her career, really kind of like toyed in her fashion choices between this this idea of what is feminine and, and and what is masculine and has always kind of blended these arenas and to me this might be the apotheosis of of her her playing with that so yes she's my fave yeah i read that she said i am camp it's embedded in my dna so mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah her outfit was amazing and then Somebody else who did an amazing uh, performance in Fuchsia and Black is my personal favorite of the night. Well, one of my personal favorites, which was Lady Gaga, who did this insane four change number. It was like a 15 minute affair where she kept going up and down the Met steps. And she's accompanied (laughs) by Brandon Maxwell, her dear friend and fashion designer of all the ensemble. She started in this giant fuchsia number with this huge train that was carried by an entourage of dancers. And then she stripped down to this black bubbly number, um, bubbly silhouette. And then Brandon took that off of her and she had this form-fitting fuchsia columnar gown. And then she had this like fabulous giant like 90s cell phone that was also like a purse she kept taking her <laughs> lipstick out of. And then from that, she just stripped down to her bra and undies and kind of walked away around with this little, um, you know, a cart behind her. It was hilarious and amazing. And we actually received a dress listener um, direct message from Angela Donnelly who asked, is Brandon Maxwell Monsieur Chatelaine? Because he had all of his like <laughs> wardrobe accoutrements, like his scissors and his lint brush and gold, like all hung on the side of him. So that was such a fun performance. If only, if only he would have known that that's exactly what he needed. Right. So anyways, like, that's my um one of my top ones. So who else do you got for me? Um, okay, so I I just have to like issue like a serious preface with what I'm about to say. <laughs> it was just I am not a fan of the Kardashian Jenner situation that's happening culturally right now. I mean, it's fine if you are, but I have to say that Kim's dress, it was emblazoned in my brain and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Oh my it. gosh. And then, and then I had to investigate. So I did. And what's really interesting is, well, first of all, she's wearing this dress that is supremely form-fitting. No big surprise on her, like right? ridiculously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's made of latex that basically matches the exact color of her skin. And, and then it has all these things that on the time when I was just seeing it initially in the pictures just looked like, I, mean, I guess they looked like beads. It was beaded. but as I like started investigating this further, what I found out was that it was designed by Thierry Mugler, who we've already done a fashion history mystery episode about. And in fact, this is amazing. It's the first time 
that he has designed anything under his label in 20 years. Wow. And he did it for her. Wow. Yeah. And apparently designing this dress took eight months. Oh, my gosh. And the, the, the idea of it was to make it look like she was coming out of the ocean completely naked. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> it, so once once you know that about the dress right. and you go back and look at it, you're like, oh, this is genius. I mean, otherwise it was like way too much. Oh, that yeah. That was my initial reaction. I had but a, if the theme is yeah. camp, I don't think way too much is a thing that no. exists. And I have to camp. say that I I do have a little bit of love for the Kardashians. I mean, it's like my guilty pleasure. But um, also, <laughs> Kendall, Kendall and Kylie wore these like amazing showgirl confections created by Versace. They yeah. were insane. And and it yeah. was fabulous. It's like this bright orange with like these huge feathers. And so I, rem- I remember distinctively waiting for the showgirl moment to happen on the red carpet last night. And it was Kylie and Kendall who brought it first. So... And then let's yeah. also just mention Kanye West because he literally is like all in black with like a Dickies jacket. It's yeah, it's not just all in black. He's like wearing like jeans and a zip-up jacket. <laughs> I know, but he's like this, like almost like this palette or like this black palette in the back that uh that he's Kim like a can foil like, to what yeah, they're doing. So Kim can just stand out. I mean, I, I thought it was kind of I I I didn't mind it at all, actually. But I was kind of surprised he went he went that low key. Um Okay, so we got the Kardashians out of the way. Can we talk about Cardi B? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I mean, this woman is emerging as this new star of avant-garde fashion, and I love it. I didn't really know who she was um, until last, you know, until we did our FHM episode because she did that insane Terry Mugler, you know, themed Grammys extravaganza. And, you know, she she won for Best Rap Artist and... But she's having so much fun um, with these exuberant, uh, extravagant clothing. So she wore this insane Tom Brown dress that was, it was Oxford blood, custom tulle organza, and befeathered gown with a 10-foot train. It was decorated with 30,000 burned and dyed feathers, and it took 35 people 2,000 hours to create. And it's topped with a Stephen Jones bugle bead headdress. I don't think she got the message about, like, maybe you shouldn't use 30,000 feathers in your dress, especially when they're on the underside of your dress. (laughs) Tom Brown didn't get the message. But, hey, I bet they were, they have to be, like, responsibly sourced. They have to be. I don't know. There's no way. They're they're cock feathers. We know that. Because that was, like, put out in the press. Not to say that the press is always correct, but, you know. Let's do some research on that because that's a lot. The thing that I found most interesting about her outfit is that, um, so, okay, it's very, like, kind of, like, exactly hugging all the curves of her body. And the breast area was all bugle beads, but where her nipples would be placed um, were, were like these additional like jewels, you know, mimicking, you know, nipples. And apparently, Cass, I don't know if you read this, but those were real. Oh, yes. Those were real rubies worth (laughs) $250,000 each. Yeah. Designed by Safair. 44 karat ruby nipples, everybody. And Tom Brown said that I designed this dress for Cardi specifically because she's the ultimate beauty in a woman's body. And that is what the dress is about for me, taking advantage of that beauty. So incredible dress on Cardi B. Who else? Who else? Who else? Okay, should we do some dudes? 
Uh, yes, but one more before we do the dudes. Can we talk okay. about Katy Perry? Oh, yes. Oh, please. <laughs> Functioning chandelier, everybody. Functioning chandelier. Jeremy Scott for Moschino. Uh, yeah. And there was a lot of Moschino on the runway. There really I mean, was. Because, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what he does. Yeah. Jeremy Scott said it. Who has ever been to a ball? Also, but, also yeah. a fellow Kansas Cityan, by oh. the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. he said, who has ever been to a ball that did not have a chandelier? The idea of elegance itself is quite camp, and I wanted to play with that concept, poke a little fun at it with a loving nudge. <laughs> One ha- headline I read said, Katy Perry, former chandelier, changed into a hamburger at the Met Gala. Indeed, <laughs> she literally put on a hamburger outfit for the after party. She did. So. Yep. <laughs> Like like one of those ones that advertises like come into our store and oh, eat a burger my like gosh. on the street if you're in New York. Like talk about yeah. fun and fashion ultimate. Absolutely. Um, but no, I seriously do want to talk about some of these guys oh, because yes. my number one I have to say probably is Jordan Roth. Yes, mine too. <laughs> who rocked some freaking custom Iris Von oh, Herpen in gosh. way of this cape that was like. I don't know, like 10 feet wide. And when you revealed the fabric, the print on it was um, like a scene of like theater loge or theater boxes. It was the interior of like a theatrical theater, which I didn't get at first until I started researching exactly who he was. And he basically owns all of the most prominent theaters on Broadway. Yeah, he's a huge Broadway producer and Oak Couture client, yeah. I might add. Yeah, it was so great. It was really, really great. I loved that one. What about you? I mean, he was my number one. And honestly, I didn't even realize because I was watching it live. I saw him opening and closing um, on the video, but I didn't see what he was doing until today when I did a little bit more research. And so when the cape is closed, it actually is a closed curtain on his body. So it's, (laughs) I did some research into how she achieved this like optical illusion. And so the top layer of this double layer cape is this hybrid material of cotton and mylar. And it's digitally printed with an image of red curtains and it's heat bonded and laser cut after that into this wavy web. And you can see a video of this online, of course. And um, Iris calls it the glitch. She just developed it for her spring 2019 collection. And so the line design of the wave, she says, creates a three-dimensional bubble effect when moving that's designed to move faster than the eye can follow. It literally tricks the eye. So when he opens his arms, the glitch bubble stretches and reveals a new label layer beneath. And that's this huge interior of the mm-hmm. theater. So, And that's why she's genius. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so incredible. And he said, for me, I gravitate to the performative ideas of camp, both the artifice and exaggeration, but also the metaphor of life as theater. That's where I live. So literally the embodiment of camp mm-hmm. and theater. <laughs> All right. Who else? I, I, I have a feeling we might agree on the next person we mentioned, but I'll let you, you say and we'll see. I gonna go with Ryan Murphy and Christian Siriano. Oh, that was pretty good too. You are leaning towards yeah. the aquatic themed outfits. <laughs> yeah, and his, he basically was wearing like this kind of like peachy golden glitter tux-ish garment, which covered by a cape that was totally encrusted in pearls and sequins. Um, and so much so that apparently it weighed 100 pounds, and that when he was traveling to the event, he had to lay down wearing it in a car flat. Oh, my gosh. But that's not the reason. 
Oh, and you're right with the aquatic reference cast because apparently um, it was influenced by a cape, entirely inspired by a cape, owned by Liberace. Oh. Which was called Neptune. So <laughs> one of the, one of the things that's been really interesting to me, besides just like the just very direct things about what you and I like, are how many actual references to fashion history or costume history right. that were on the runway. Because it wasn't only Ryan Murphy and Christian Siriano doing this. Like Gemma Chan was wearing a Tom Ford ensemble that was inspired by Elizabeth Taylor's 1968 film Boom. Um, Emily Rada's Barely There, She Might Be Naked Ensemble <laughs> by Peter Dundas was also inspired by Cher. And we saw a lot of, like, Cher references. And um, Cher apparently and, showed up at the after party and performed, which was amazing. Oh. Or no, at, actually, she showed up at the Met Gala. Bob Mackie was there. I mean, this was a quite the night and event. And speaking of historical references, can we talk about Mr. Billy Porter, please? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Who arrived on a couch? Oh, no, it's, it's no, technically it's called a litter. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. The litter, which I actually <laughs> just learned that that was a term today <laughs> that, yeah. that applies to these, uh, you know, kind of dramatic, like, um, carrying devices that carry humans. So he's carried like, by... Like if, you're, like if you're Cleopatra. Exactly, which he basically yeah. was. He was carried by six shirtless <laughs> men. All of their movements were choreographed. He was in this amazing gold bejeweled sun god ensemble by the blondes bejeweled catsuit with 10 foot wings 24 karat gold headpiece and for all those pose fans out there of course ryan murphy is the creator of pose billy porter is the star of pose he wrote i think on his twitter the category is old testament realness so <laughs> 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 and uh, he um, he said to Vogue, camp is often used as a pejorative. What I love about having it at the Met Gala and contextualizing camp is it brings honor to a word and genre that can be discounted very often or thought of as cheesy. When it's done properly, it's one of the highest forms of fashion and art. So another gentleman that I just want to mention um, who did amazing last night was also in a Christian Siriano gown slash suit. And that was Michael Uri who had this gender-bending half-ball gown, half-men's pinstripe suit. And he really subverted the stereotypes surrounding those two gendered garments by being bearded on half his face with the ball gown <laughs> and then clean-shaven and had makeup on on the half with the suit. So, so many fun things happening last night. Which also has a historical precedent. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so many fun costumes, so many fun things. I mean, honorable mentions would be Ashley Graham and Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan himself was there. Uh, Harry Styles and the freeing the nipple moment in Gucci. Lots of fun moments last night, including Jared Leto carrying his own head in Gucci. I mean, so many fun things to unwrap and unravel in that evening. And if you want to see more, I highly suggest going to the Met Gala 2019 uh, Instagram page and checking it out. They did um, really live updates on that all night. Yeah. And, and if you want to learn a little bit more, you can also... Check out Lucy Clayton and Benjamin Wiles fantastic podcast Dressed Fancy, which is all about the um, history of fancy dress or what we in the U.S. call costume because they just did an entire episode on camp style. And I know they have another one coming out when they will, too, also be discussing the Met Gala. So um, they might kind of define this term 
further for you because our intent here today was really just to provide a history of this event, which has now basically become fashion's most anticipated event of the year. Right. And you can also grab a copy of the exhibition catalog to learn more about camp. Or better yet, if you're in New York City, you can check out the exhibit in person on view starting May 9th, which is today, actually, when this episode airs, through September 8th. So check it out. And I also want to say a huge dress congratulations to the fantastic team behind the exhibit. We have so many friends that work there. Shout out to all our ladies. And that includes previous dressed guest, Sarah Scaturo, the CI's head conservator, who recently was actually on CBS talking about her and her team's fantastic work on the exhibit. So you can also Google that and check it out. And with that, we will bid you adieu for the week. Please tune in next Tuesday for a full-length episode. Until then, may you consider sprinkling a little bit of camp into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.